Well, thanks, Mike. How's everybody doing? Good, good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach, one of the pastors here. Hope that you are doing well. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 26. 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 26. Let me set the stage while you are turning there. Uh, Sometimes when my family and I, if it's on the weekend or something and we're getting bored, we will go to the mall, okay? Now, not because we're going to buy something there. It's 2019. You just buy everything on Amazon. But we'll go to the mall to look around and to hang out and to get a snack and these kind of things. And there are certain things I like about the mall. So first, I love watching people. Not like through binoculars, not like in a creepy way, but I just like seeing social interactions, seeing the one person that's walking against the traffic, right? It's always easy to spot a British person in an American mall. They're always walking on the wrong side. I love seeing the people that uh, are trying to get on the escalator as if it's a big deal, right? Like when I walk onto an escalator because I'm a normal human, I just walk and get onto it. But some people, you can see them timing it. They're psyching themselves up. They're like, okay, right now and I missed it. Okay, we're going to do it for the next one. And they start stretching and they just have a lot of trouble. Those kind of things I love to see. And I especially love getting an Auntie Anne's pretzel. You guys know what these pretzels are? Soft pretzels. They're they're buttery and they're salty and they come with like a spicy queso. It's amazing. They're not like ballpark soft pretzels, which actually are not that soft, but these things are amazing. If you offered me an Auntie Anne's pretzel and a million dollars, I'd take the million dollars, but I'd use it to buy Auntie Anne's pretzels, you see, and so I could have both. And so there's certain things I enjoy uh, doing at the mall. Now, there's something I don't like at the mall, and this happens every time I'm there for some reason. There's always somebody trying to sell me some type of cosmetics, okay? I don't know why. They're, They're in one of those booths. They're not in the real stores. The real stores are on the side of the mall. They're in these little booths, these little stands that are selling iPhone covers or whatever, and there are always, for some reason, somebody will go around the women who would actually buy the product, and they will come up to me and try to sell me mud from the Dead Sea, or they will try to sell me some type of skin moisturizer. So someone will come up to me and say something like, sir, are you happy with your complexion? Which already is kind of an insult, right? (laughs) Sir, why don't you try Diet Coke? You know, something like that. That's what it feels like. So they come up and they say, sir, are you happy with your complexion? I'm always thinking, I'm a 6'1", 200-pound male with a beard and like a t-shirt with a skull on it. I'm not your clientele. I don't know why you think this is what I need, but it's not going to happen. And if you buy it, if you give a little, they will take all your money. It's like $4,000 for some type of, you know, man cream that you, uh, you know, helps your complexion or whatever it is. Now, the reason I tell you that is because that's kind of the image that John's going to give us with false teachers today. He's going to say that the false teachers are going to come and try to sell you something you don't really need. And if you accept it, it will cost you everything, okay? If you accept it, it will cost you everything. And John is going to say, stay away. He's going to say, you don't need what they're offering. You don't need to purchase what they are selling. You have everything you need if you are a Christian. So let's pray, and then we'll get into this text. Before we pray, though, I want to say this. I think sometimes when we pray together as a church, it feels like just a way to start and end a service. So don't do that. All right, anytime somebody prays, I just kind of check out until somebody starts talking again. Pray with me in your heart as I pray. Let's pray together as a church. Almighty God, we thank you that you're good and that you're loving. We confess that you are greater than we can possibly imagine. And yet, because our hearts are sick with sin, we choose things that are lesser than you. Would you help us? We don't see things rightly. We're foolish and we're limited and we're human and we're sinful and we're broken. So we just confess that we uh, need help. We thank you for this text. We pray that it would encourage us this morning. uh, And we want to ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. Verse 26, 
John says, as he's warning, by the way, this is in a bigger context where John is warning against false teachers. He's warning against what he calls antichrists, which is anybody that preaches against Christ or against true doctrine, and he says this, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Here you get to see John the pastor. Part of what a good pastor does, part of what a good shepherd does is he warns them against wolves. He warns them against these deceivers. So let me say it this way. If you are a parent, do you keep creepers away from your child? Yes, you absolutely do. I was sitting down recently and my son was on this indoor playground and I was sitting there watching him and some guy came up and started talking to him and I'm like, nope. And so I'm there in about two seconds and I'm like, hey, what's the problem here? And he's like, well, your, your son didn't take off his shoes. And I'm like, well, did you call the police? I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty big. How about you stop talking to my son, jorts? And so he left and he went away and he was able to play. Now, because I love my kids, I protect them. I protect who they're, I protect them from certain people. I determine who they get to hang out around, etc. John is doing the same thing, okay? He's protecting these. He's saying, let me warn you. It's like kind of this, John's kind of this, this grandfatherly apostle figure. And he's saying, hear me, little children. Watch out for those trying to deceive you. John Calvin says this, it is the duty of a good and diligent pastor, not only to gather the flock, but also to drive away wolves. And so no one can faithfully teach the church unless he is set on banishing errors wherever he finds them spread by seducers. I have met certain young men training for ministry that are in seminary, and I think to myself, this guy will not be a good pastor because he's unkind. He's not gracious, he's not good with people, he's socially awkward, whatever it might be. But far more often than that, I meet young men in seminary training for ministry, and I think this guy can't be in ministry because he's a coward. He won't say what needs to be said. He will be embarrassed by the Bible. He will just go with the larger ebb and flow of, uh, of drifting evangelicalism. He won't stand up and proclaim God's word truthfully. And John here does that. John's not afraid to say things that are offensive. John here wants to warn them against deceivers. We as Christians, to know deceivers, must know truth. That's how we'll know what's false. We have to know what's true to know what is false. And so we should very much care about what is true. You ever heard somebody in an argument say, you just care about being right? You ever heard somebody say that? Yes, all the time we should care about being right. What they mean to say is, please don't come off as arrogant. That's a fine critique. But we should always care about trying to be right. You cannot be wrong to the glory of God. You cannot hold a falsehood to the glory of God. Well, Zach, shouldn't you win the person and not the argument? Why can't I do both? Does it honor God to win the person through deception? Does it honor God to win the person through a false argument? Why have you created this false dichotomy? We should care about the truth and it's something that we should do together as a church. So one of the things that Jeff mentioned last week is that these commands to abide in Christ and to hold one another accountable are given in the plural. They're given to the church. How often do we hold each other accountable not just for our actions but for what we think and what we believe? I would say probably rarely. I've been a part of a lot of community groups and a lot of accountability groups, and typically that time is only spent talking about morality. Am I doing or not doing this particular action? But what if we also held each other accountable with our theology, with what we think, where we go to somebody and rebuke them, not just because of pride, but we go to them and say, you hold this wrong view on scripture and that doesn't honor Christ, so let's study it together, that we are to have this true doctrine so that we can avoid false doctrine. Friends don't let friends become heretics, okay? Somebody get that printed on a t-shirt. Now look at the last part of verse 26 here. I write these things to you about those who are, specifically this last phrase, those who are trying to deceive you, okay? False teachers are trying to deceive you 
and it will not often be obvious that they do that. I think whenever we read this, we think, yeah, stay away from false teachers. Well, everyone wants to stay away from false teachers, and yet they follow them. And so we have to know what is true so that we can know what is deceptive. What false teachers do is they appear like the devil does as an angel of light, and what the devil tries to do is to make God look bad. The enemy wants to make God the enemy. You see this back in the garden. He tells Eve, the reason God doesn't want you to do the tree is because he knows all this great stuff will happen. You'll be like God knowing good and evil and God doesn't want good for you. And so therefore that's why he's given you this command. The enemy wants to make God the enemy and so do those who follow the devil, which are false teachers. They are trying to deceive you. They might not even know that's what they're doing, but that is what they're doing. And so we have to be attuned to biblical truth so that we can avoid those kind of things. Now, um, I have two kids. My son is four. His name is Judah, and my daughter is two. Her name is Isla. And uh, I will sit down and watch a show with my four-year-old, mainly to see what he's watching, okay? Now, when I was a kid watching TV, there were shows that had stories. They had plots. They taught moral lessons, whatever. When I sit down with him, it's like the show starts with a guitar riff, and it's like ninja dragon, dinosaur trucks, and there's an explosion, and it's just pure stimulus. It's just like 20 minutes of stimulus. There's no story. Everything happens at the same time. So I went to Carl Brower, our family minister, and I said, okay, here's something I'm struggling with, Carl. I don't know how to let my child know that there's evil in the world. Maybe you as a parent have been wrestling with that. How, how much evil do I expose my child to? Because if you never let your kids know that there is evil in the world, one, they can never read the Bible, which has incest and rape and murder and all kinds of things. That's why Jewish boys were not allowed to read Song of Solomon until they reached the age of 13. But also, also when they go off to college, they will go off the deep end, right? Imagine never having sugar, and then you turn 18 and culture is ready to give you all the sugar you can have, okay? The people I know that are the most wicked were not raised by atheists. They were raised by overbearing fundamentalist Christians, okay? And so I don't want to not expose him to any evil, but at the same time, he's four, I don't want him to like watch Saw or something like this. There's, there's an in-between, right? He'll end up weird either way if he knows there's no evil or he's just overexposed to evil. And so I went to Carl and I said, what, what do I need to be looking for? And he said, the first thing you already know, that obviously as they get older, they can understand more and more things. That's great. He said, but here's what could be really helpful. He said, the biggest thing with your kids, whether it's movies or TV or books or whatever it is, he said, you have to make sure that it shows evil as evil instead of evil as good. So for example, when I was a kid, I watched G.I. Joe, which has violence, but it was very clear who's good and who's bad, and it was righteous violence being used against those who are evil. That's the way the Bible uses violence, okay? That is actually less dangerous, even though there's some violence, than some show with no violence where the main character is like snotty and whiny and, and awful, right? So he said the big thing is making sure they see evil as evil instead of evil as good. By the way, this is a true lesson for us as well. The most popular shows right now are shows where you cheer for the bad guy. You cheer for the villain, okay? Doesn't mean you can't watch the show, but you just need to be aware of where your heart is going. 60 years ago, Superman was the big hero, okay? Now, I hate Superman because, one, he's too powerful, right? He can fly and he's strong and he has laser vision, oh yeah, and x-ray vision and he can, you know, divide by zero and all these other kind of things. But he also is too much of a goody two-shoes, right? It's like you'd go to a party with him and he'd be like, don't spill anything on the rug. You don't want to hang out with Superman. I like Batman. Why? Because he's wounded. Because he's dark. The Joker movie would not have made it 60 years ago because it's for the villain. 
So what we have to realize is to be able to know these kind of things, we must know truth so that we can see evil as evil and we can see evil as, or so we can see good as good. That doesn't mean you can't watch those things or whatever it is. It just means you have to have your Bible glasses on when you do so, so you can discern good and evil. He's warning them to say, when a false teacher comes, you're not always going to see it immediately, so test what they're saying so that they do not deceive you. So they do not deceive you. Verse 27a. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. Let's look at that first phrase, but the anointing. That is a reference to the person of the Holy Spirit, okay? Why does he call him the anointing? In the Old Testament, anointing is linked to the Holy Spirit. So what would happen if uh, there was somebody who was gonna become king is a prophet would take oil, pour it on the king's head, and oil was a symbol of the Holy Spirit's presence. The idea was, I'm not making you king as a prophet. God is making you king. Or, for example, there are certain people that are empowered by the Spirit to help build the temple. The reason that he's calling the Holy Spirit the anointing is because the Holy Spirit is the one who equips us. He's the one who helps us in our thinking. He's the one who gives us faith. Martin Luther says this about the Holy Spirit. I believe that I cannot, by my own reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him but the Holy Spirit has called me through the gospel, enlightened me by his gifts, and sanctified and preserved me in the true faith. In the same way he calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies the whole Christian church on earth and preserves it in union with Jesus Christ in the one true faith. In this Christian church, listen, he daily and richly forgives all my sins and the sins of all believers, and he will raise me up I'm sorry, raise up me and all the dead at the last day and he will grant eternal life to me and to all who believe in Christ. The reason he's calling him the anointing is because the spirit equips, okay? He equips for ministry, he equips for salvation, he equips for service, that's what he does. And the text continues on to say this. Oh, by the way, John has already referred to the Holy Spirit as the anointing, okay? That's not only clear from the context, but we've actually already gone over that in a previous lesson, so I won't rehash that here. Now look at the next part. But the anointing, look at this next part, that you received from him abides in you. The him here is most likely Jesus. Jesus is the one who gives the spirit, okay? And so he's saying that the Holy Spirit resides in you. Now, notice that John is talking to a group of Christians and he is saying that if you are a Christian, you have the spirit, you have this anointing. There is no such thing as a Christian who doesn't have the spirit. You're either a Christian who has the spirit or you're not a Christian and you don't have the spirit. This is where we at Parkway would disagree with uh, some of our Pentecostal and Assemblies of God brothers and sisters who believe that there is a second baptism or a second blessing or a second reception of the Holy Spirit. We don't hold that. In the Bible, when you come to Christ, the Holy Spirit is not just like water. He's a person. You either have him or you don't. The question is not, will I get more of the Spirit? The question is, will he have more of me? Will I submit my life to him and walk in his power more and more? You see, the problem with thinking that there's kind of uh, some people who have the spirit and some people who really have the spirit, you get that in certain branches of the charismatic movement, that yes, you're saved because you trust Christ, but if you would evidence this great thing by speaking in tongues, then you'd really have the spirit. What you start doing is you start creating varsity and JV Christianity. Yes, you're saved, but barely. But me, I'm like super Christian, all right? I'm super Christian. Here's what it looks like to be spirit-filled. It looks like years of putting sin to death. It looks like years of studying your Bible every day. It looks like years of praying. It looks like years of confessing your sin. It's difficult. That's what a spirit-filled life looks like. 
Part of the reason the charismatic movement grew so quickly in the U.S. is because it's microwave spirituality. You have this experience and then you've arrived instead of realizing this is a long, difficult, and painful process. John is saying if you're a Christian, you have this anointing. This anointing resides in you, okay? That's what he is saying here in this text. Now look at this next part because this is very confusing in verse 27, first part here, 27a. He says this, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. Well, that's my resignation, right? We're going to burn all theology books and we're going to close all churches and we're going to destroy all seminaries because the Bible is clear that we have no need for anyone to teach us. Is that what it means? Is that what the text means? How do we know that it doesn't mean literally you don't need anybody to teach you? Because John's teaching them, okay? If I come up to you and say, you have no need of anyone to teach you, I have just taught you, namely, that you have no need of anyone to teach you. Okay, so it can't literally mean that. That would also go against a bunch of other passages in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 12, 28. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. Ephesians 4, 11 through 14. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers, why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. You're the pastors in your community, by the way, not me. The church is a seminary for lay people, and everybody else is like a lowercase p pastor in your area. Equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in evil and deceitful schemes. Acts 20, 28, talking about these elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. God has given teachers to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry. The church is not a democracy. Do you know why? Because the church is not American. You see this with a lot of churches where a church vote becomes a church split. The Holy Spirit's leading half the congregation one way, and for some reason the Holy Spirit's leading half the congregation the other way, and then they split over the color of the carpet, okay? The church is also not a republic where the people put in power their represented leader, and if he doesn't say the things that they like, they leave or something like that. Rather, God has gifted the church with teachers slash elders to equip them for the work of ministry and to help guard against false doctrine. So what does it mean here when he then says that you have no need of anyone to teach you? Let me give you two thoughts on this. First of all, you have to understand the context here is false teachers. The false teachers are coming to them and saying, I have this secret knowledge. I have the real way of following God. I have a different version of Jesus. And if you don't follow me, you're not really saved. That's the context. The kind of teaching they don't need are the kind of teachers that the false teachers have. That's the immediate context. But you also need to be encouraged in this. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit will preserve you in orthodox doctrine. Okay? Can you be off on little things and be a Christian? Absolutely. We all are. We all are, okay? But there's something about when you really are born again, the Holy Spirit keeps you from becoming an actual heretic, keeps you from believing crazy things when it comes to the doctrine of God or Christ or whatever it might be. I'll give you a little example in my own life. Uh, I grew up in church, but I didn't become a Christian until I was about a junior or senior in high school. And I didn't know any theology. I hadn't read a theology book. I didn't know any of that. I just became a new Christian. And I was talking on the phone with my buddy and I said, all right, man, I gotta go, I gotta go worship Jesus. Those are the words that came out of my mouth. I gotta go worship Jesus. And I got off the phone and I thought to myself, do we worship Jesus? Well, yeah, of course we do. But there's only one God. Yeah, that must be true too. Okay, I guess both are right. No one had even taught me that. Just as a new Christian, there was something about it where I already had this kind of 
nascent Trinitarianism. I knew there was only one God, but I knew we should also worship Jesus. And then when finally somebody sit, sat down and explained the Trinity to me, my heart rejoiced. I thought that's absolutely right. You see, heresy is not a matter of just people not being smart enough. Heresy is not a matter of the head. It's a matter of the heart. It's somebody who's not been regenerated so they don't see the truths of God's word, okay? The Holy Spirit is the one who's teaching you. If I could summarize what he's saying, he's simply saying this. If you have the Holy Spirit and if you have the Bible, you have all that you need. Don't listen to the false teachers. Don't listen to their extras, their used car salesman add-ons. Don't listen to that. You have the Holy Spirit, he's self-authenticating. He's self-authenticating. Men, have you ever tried to uh, use a weed eater while wearing shorts? The weed eater itself teaches you something really, really quickly. Namely, ouch, right? So when you're a kid and you first learn to do weeding, you're like, oh, it's hot outside. I'm going to wear shorts. And then you go to some gravel and it feels like you stepped on a beehive and they're just like attacking your legs. No one had to come to you and say, you should wear pants when you weed eat. The weed eater itself teaches you pretty quickly. The Holy Spirit does the same thing, only gentler, only gentler, okay? He is self-authenticating. Here I think John has specifically in mind Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34. Look what it says here. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So he's not saying literally get rid of all teachers and all pastors and all theology books. Those things are gifts to the church. What he's saying is you don't need to listen to the false teachers and the Holy Spirit preserves you. He keeps you. He helps you hold correct doctrine. Now look at verse 27b, the second half of 27. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Let's look at that first part but as his anointing teaches you about everything. Does that mean literally everything? The Holy Spirit teaches you how to fly an airplane. The Holy Spirit teaches you the last number of pi, something like this. The idea in context is everything you need for salvation, life, and godliness. He's saying when you have the true gospel, the apostolic gospel, the orthodox Christian gospel that the church has held for 2,000 years, you have everything you need and the Spirit preserves you. Don't listen to the false teachers that are selling you that cosmetic or whatever it is, though you don't actually need it. Now, let me explain something real quick that I think is super important and it's a place we could easily go astray. When it says, but his anointing teaches you about everything, how does the Holy Spirit teach us? How does the Holy Spirit teach us? Let me explain what he does and doesn't do. It's not that the Holy Spirit gives you new doctrine in your mind. Okay, that's what a lot of people think this passage means. The Holy Spirit teaches me means every time I have a thought that I think is the Spirit, that's what he's telling me to do. Guess what that is? Typically you, or you had some bad Mexican food or something, and you start confusing that with the Spirit, okay? That's not the idea here. The idea here is that the Holy Spirit is not giving you new doctrine. The Holy Spirit is helping you retain the doctrine that's already been given. The Holy Spirit doesn't give you the meaning of the biblical text. The meaning is in the text. The meaning is in God's word. The Holy Spirit's job is to help you see it. His job is to help you believe it. It's like that the Bible is pure because the Bible is pure, it's perfect, but we're not pure. When we come to the Bible, it's like we have these foggy glasses on. The Holy Spirit's job is to unfog those glasses so that we can see the Bible accurately. Those glasses get fogged up by our limitations. They get fogged up by our presuppositions. They get fogged up by our sin. The Spirit's job is not to give you the meaning of the text. That's already in the Bible. 
People that do not have the Spirit can read the Bible and understand at least some of what it says. The Holy Spirit's job is to convince you of its truth. It's to help you retain that information. Let me read you a great quote by a uh, Johannine scholar. He wrote a great commentary on 1 John. His name is Colin Cruz. Here's what he says about this. The role of the Spirit is primarily as a testimony to the Christian tradition, not as a source of new revelation. Admittedly, the tradition is handed down by the witnesses, and to that extent, the Holy Spirit confirms the testimony of true teachers. The Spirit doesn't give you new revelation. The Spirit helps you believe, retain, and walk in the revelation God has already given you in his word as it's been passed down in the tradition of the Christian church, okay? Notice that false teachers don't do this. Here's something false teachers always do. First of all, false teachers typically have some source of new revelation, whether it's the Book of Mormon, it's the Quran, it's some guy who thinks God told him in a dream to kill a bunch of people, whatever it is. They then downplay the revelation we already have. They always say the Bible's got errors and the Bible's corrupted and you can't trust the Bible. And they make it to where you have to go to the false teachers to find salvation. It's a power play. You can't find it in Christianity or even a Christian denomination. You have to go to the cult. You have to go to the false teacher to find salvation. That's always what they do. And John is warning against that. He's saying the spirit preserves you. He makes you believe the doctrine that's been handed down to the church. He guides you in understanding God's word. You don't need the false teaching of the heretics. Now look at this next part because this next part is gonna say something about the Holy Spirit that's awesome. It's gonna say that the Holy Spirit cares about truth and it's gonna say that the Holy Spirit guides The Holy Spirit grows, okay? Grows us, meaning. It says of the Holy Spirit, and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you. Now, let me be clear. The Holy Spirit is not an it. He is a he, okay? He's not like just some impersonal force. He's God. The reason it uses the word it here is because it's referring to the anointing, okay? The word anointing is what it's referencing, which is why it says it, though the Holy Spirit is uh, a person. Uh, But I want you to notice this about the Spirit, that unlike the false teachers, the Holy Spirit is true, And unlike the false teachers, the Holy Spirit is the one who grows us. Let's look at some passages. John 14, 17. Even the spirit of what? Of what? Truth. Notice the Holy Spirit here is linked to truth, the spirit of truth. Whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. John 15, 26. But when the helper comes, whom I will send, okay, to you from the Father, you see the Trinitarianism here, the spirit of what? Truth, there it is again. Who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. John 16, 13. When the spirit of what? Truth, again, comes. He will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. What he's saying is, unlike the false teachers, the spirit is true. And he is the one who originally in context is guiding the apostles. The spirit brings to the apostles' memory everything that Jesus has said. But by implication, we know that we too are led by the Spirit. Now look at this last part here. Out of all this text, it hasn't given us a command or anything yet. But here we actually get our first practical. Okay, so what, Zach? Stay away from false teachers, got it. Love the Holy Spirit, got it. We don't need new weird revelation, got it. What else do I need to get from this text? Look at this last part here. Abide in him. Abide in him, okay? We are commanded here. And there's some debate, by the way, in Greek. This can be read either as an indicative that we are abiding in him or it can be read as an imperative, a command, therefore abide in him, okay? So we are to abide in God. We are to abide in Christ. We are to walk in submission to the Holy Spirit, yes and amen. But here's my question, how do we do that? What does that actually mean? That's one of those things pastors say that don't actually help anybody. So get out there and walk in the power of the Spirit. 
cool. Like, uh, as I'm going to get gas in my car, what does that look like? Walk in the power of the... It's just kind of one of those generic phrases. What does it mean to abide in him? Well, here's the first thing I want you to see that we actually skipped over. I want to go back to it now because I think it's really important. Look back in verse 27. If you've got your Bible, flip over back again to verse 27. It says this. But the anointing that you received from him, what? Abides in you. Do you see it? We're commanded to abide in Christ. We can only do so because God has abided in us first. He is the one doing the stuff. The way that you abide in Christ is not by trying harder, not by cleaning yourself up, not by doing better, but by realizing his spirit already abides in you. That's revolutionary. Most of us say abide in Christ, I'm gonna do better. I'm gonna try not to curse so much when I stub my toe. Abiding in Christ has to do with realizing that he already abides in you through the spirit. Let me, let me say it this way. When I was in high school, I got into rock climbing, which I thought was a lot of fun. I, uh, I used to be a bit more wiry, and so I could uh, climb that wall like a spider. And so I learned to do rock climbing, and uh, we went on a rock climbing trip to uh, Arkansas. If you've never been to Arkansas, on the one hand, it's beautiful, and the people are super nice. On the other hand, all the stereotypes are true, okay? So while we're driving there, we saw a little kid with a shotgun over his shoulder, barefoot, walking down the street. And I thought, what is happening, Right? The guy that welcomed us to our hotel had, and I, and I quote, or and I not quote, but he had, count them, four teeth, okay? And so there's certain things about uh, Arkansas like that are true. Now, as you're learning to do rock climbing, the way that you start out is called top roping, okay? So you put on a harness and you have a carabiner and you have a rope tied to it, and that rope goes over something up high and then back down to another person who acts as your anchor, your belayer who belays you, okay? You don't do crazy free solo climbing when you first start or you just die, okay? If you've never seen the movie Free Solo, see it, it's amazing. It has nothing to do with the sermon. So you have your harness, you have a rope, it goes up around something and it goes down to another person and that other person is there to catch you in case you fall. So as you climb, they pull that slack out of the rope so if you fall, you don't fall 50 feet or whatever, you just fall a little bit. So they, they strap you on, they're tied to that other person. The very first time you climb up a rock wall, you get to the top and you're like, I did it. And then they say, let go. And you're like, nope, I'm just going to learn how to live up here. I will eat up here. I will start a community up here. This is, this is how I live now. I'm a rock person. This is where I live. And so they say, no, you have to let go. So the first time you do it, you let go and you instantly grab the rope. As if you're going to hold up your body weight with that tiny little rope. And they let you down the wall as you bump into it because you haven't learned how to push off of it yet. Okay? That's what it looks like. Now, as time goes on, you start to realize you don't have to hold the rope at all. Do you know why? Because you don't hold the rope. The rope holds you. Experienced climbers, when they get to the top, they let go and they just put all their weight in the harness. They know that that harness is stronger than they are. The harness is not going to break. The rope is not going to break. So when this text tells us to abide in Christ, you need to understand, yes, abide in Christ. But the only reason you're able to do so is because he abides in you first. The only reason you're able to do so is because he is the harness. You're not holding on to him. He's holding on to you. That's how you actually abide in Christ. You don't try harder. You believe more. You rest more. You trust more. You learn to let go of the rope and you learn that Christ is holding you, okay? Let me give you some passages that I think are really important. Before I do these, I want you to hear this phrase. You don't preserve you. You don't save you. You don't sanctify you. You don't preserve you. You don't keep you. You don't. God is one who gives you salvation. God is the one who keeps you saved. God is the one who glorifies you. God is the one who does the stuff, okay? 
Now look at these passages. You don't preserve you, the Spirit does. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit seals you. The Holy Spirit is God's promise that he's not going to drop you. He doesn't put a down payment on you and not finish making those payments, okay? He's preserving you. Galatians 3, 2 through 3. Especially hear this, especially if you grew up in church. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, Parkway? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? The same God who saves you is the same God who grows you and the way he grows you is not by your efforts in the flesh, your efforts to follow Mosaic law or otherwise. It is by knowing that he is the one who does the stuff. 2 Corinthians 1, 21 through 22. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has, what's the word? Anointed, there it is again, anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee, okay? Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. John 6, 39 through 40. And this is the will of him who sent me, this is Jesus speaking, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Zach, I'm just so afraid that maybe I'm trying to follow Jesus, and I love Jesus, but he just doesn't love me back. That never happens. If you're wanting to love him, it's only because he's loved you first. Nobody can come to him unless the Father who sent him draws them. 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, For this comes from our own efforts and from trying to be good Christians and by being good people and voting the right way, right? For this comes from the Lord. Notice the spirit there is called God there. He's called the Lord, Yahweh. Comes from the Lord who is the spirit, okay? I'll end with this little analogy. So I said I have two kids, Judah, who's four, and Isla, my daughter, who is two, okay? Now, Judah is extremely sensitive. He's extremely emotional. He's very relational. He'll sit down and he'll have a conversation with you. Isla, on the other hand, can be sweet, but she can also be super spicy, okay? She is feisty, and she is sassy, and she is spunky, and if you're not paying attention, she'll shiv you in the ribs, okay? (laughs) That's what she will do. She can be sweet, but she can also be super tough. So I'm kind of manic depressive, and I call Isla manic and Judah depressive. That's kind of how my kids, they get that from me. Now, Isla will either end up being the first female president, or she will run a gang in prison, but it'll be one of those two, only one of those two. So she is tough, she doesn't get hurt, she just keeps moving on. But for some reason, over the last few weeks, she's developed this terrifying fear of bugs. So she'll be tough and she'll hit herself and she'll get a cut and she'll be like, mm, and she'll just keep going. But now she'll see an ant and be like, oh, a bug, and she'll run up and she'll try to jump on it and try to hang on to me. So I'll hold her, right? And while I'm holding her, she is squeezing onto my shirt, okay? Now let me ask you this question, who is holding whom? She thinks she's holding me, but if she lets go, does she just fall to the floor? Is she hanging on to me and my arms are like this behind my back? No, I'm really the one holding her. She might think she's holding me, but I'm the one holding her. There are times where she's in trouble and she tries to run away and I still hold her. Why? Because daddy's stronger. There are times where she tries to wiggle out of my arms and she wants to be put down and I don't want her to be put down, so I keep holding her because daddy's stronger. There are times I want to give her snuggles and she doesn't want that, but it doesn't matter because daddy's stronger. So I'm like, come here. She's pushing. I'm like, I'm giving her all the kisses, okay? Are you seeing what I'm saying here? She thinks that she's holding me, 
but the whole time I'm really the one holding her even when she's trying to get away. I think many of you think that you're just hanging on to Jesus' shirt for dear life and you're afraid that if your grip starts to slip, you just fall into the abyss. I think if you would see what this passage is saying, if you would see what all of 1 John has been saying, if you would simply let go, you'd realize Jesus' hands have been under you the whole time. God preserves you because he's stronger than you. You're not really abiding him so much as he is abiding in you. And the more you realize that, the more you'll actually grow in sanctification. Are we to grow in sanctification? Yes. Are we to read our Bible and pray and do these things that God has given us so that we might love him more? Yes. He's the active agent. But how do we actually do that? It's not by striving. It's by resting. You abide in him because he abides in you first. Let's pray as the men come forward to pass out the elements for communion. Father, we come before you by the Son and through the Spirit. We confess there is only one God, the Trinitarian God of the Bible, who has eternally been Trinity. We confess that the Son is co-equal, co-eternal with the Father. We confess that the Spirit is truly God, also co-equal and co-eternal. We love you and we thank you. We ask that you bless these elements as we practice this, uh, this rite of communion, that we would be encouraged. We love you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.